We are often told to put a positive spin on challenges at work. Look at the bright side, be positive. Managers are told that they should keep their teams cheerful. But have you ever wondered if all that positivity might be harmful? If so, you'll be excited to listen to this limited series podcast from Gate Audio. Gate stands for the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. And I'm Sarah Kaplan, Gate's director. Our goal is to engage current and future leaders in rich conversations around inequities in our society and how we might address them. In this podcast series, one of Gates' MBA fellows, Simone Lima, digs into her own personal experiences with toxic positivity at work and through interviews, research, and storytelling, shares with us why it happens, how the press for positivity can sometimes be even more intense for women, and what we can do about it. Check out what Simone has to say. No, no, this is just a rough phase, everyone, and it will pass. All we can do right now is really just stay positive. So we can't really afford to hire anyone right now, but we need your hard work to close this one deal. If we land this big account and achieve our OKRs, the whole company goes to Disney by the end of the year. How cool is that? Thank you for all the extra hours you put in. The new feature is a success. There's pizza and beer waiting for you in the kitchen to celebrate this great achievement for our company. Hi, my name is Simone. My pronouns are she and her. And this intro is loosely based on real events. Now, yeah, for real, I've been through some version of all of those things in real workplaces. I enjoyed my work in early stage startups. I had fun. I was creating a career that felt meaningful in tech ventures that seemed socially engaged. I was making money. I was making friends. I really was the young adult I dreamed of being. Despite that unspoken pressure to maybe pick up clients' calls at 11 p.m. or the constant worrying about work even during my time off, or not even really having much time off because goals were simply not attainable and the teams were currently understaffed. I now understand how my previous workplaces cultures cultivated, intentionally or not, a very complex work relationship that blurred the lines between my personal and professional lives and put me in a place that was full of unnecessary pressure, gaslighting, and toxic positivity. The idea that the best way to cope with a challenging situation is to put a positive spin on it and not dwell on its negative aspects. I experienced that being done to the point where leaders would avoid discussions on impactful problems and employees were left feeling guilty and overwhelmed. Now, I'm here to investigate how toxic positivity can be found in workplaces, its consequences, and whether it impacts female-identifying employees disproportionately. This is Positively Exhausted, Stories of Toxic Positivity in the Workplace, a limited podcast series from Gate Audio Productions. In this series of three episodes, I will talk to psychology researchers, business scholars, and people in the workforce to understand why toxic positivity has entered our work lives, its impacts, and how to identify it. I will also try to answer a few questions about my personal journey along the way. 
And before we start the episode, here are some important disclaimers. First, the series contains examples of work relationships that may be triggering to some listeners, so listen responsibly. Second, even though some of the discussion you will hear mentions female and male individuals, I recognize the existence of other gender identities and that toxic positivity might affect these individuals differently. Since research on this topic is still very nascent, I made the decision to not discuss other genders, and I hope this podcast is really just a starting point for further work on toxic positivity and its impact on individuals of different gender identities. Now, on to the show. For some time, I felt like working in an environment with flexible work hours and free energy drinks in the kitchen was all I could really want. I belonged to the community that I had longed for. My company was trying to build a family atmosphere, and it seemed like they cared for our general well-being and mental health, especially when we had to work those many hours. I felt like this was the way of working of my generation, and I was proud that there was a clear divide between what I was doing and what I had seen my parents do in what now seemed just like dull, funless offices. So, fast forward to a few months later. I was already living in Toronto and started to write the scripts for these episodes when I find myself procrastinating, avoiding even looking at my computer because I didn't want to discuss my previous workplaces. I decided to write down the physical reactions that I was getting from just thinking about the job that I had just left. And this is what I got. My heart is racing and my chest area seems cold. I don't feel cold, but I feel pressure in my chest. I feel dizzy or like I'm just gonna float away. So how could it be that the same events were causing me such conflicting emotions? To try to answer that question, I reached out to Dr. Norman Farb. Hi, my name is Norman Farb. I'm an associate professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. What Norman studies is the neuroscience of human identity and emotion. And I try to figure out sort of how mental habits that we form about how we think about ourselves as the world sort of shape a context that leads us into, you know, flourishing or down into uh, the pits of despair and, and what we can do to push those habits around so make people uh, a little, a little happier and healthier if possible is the dream. To try to understand how I could even have such conflicting emotions about the same experiences, I had to start from the very beginning. Can you tell us what are human emotions? Why are they important? Why do we have them? Uh, sure, yeah. So there's lots of different theories of human emotion and, and there's actually quite a bit of variety of opinion about how hardwired our emotions are versus how much we've learned to, you know, even have certain emotions based on what we've learned from socially growing up. Um, but I'm a bit more on the, at least like some things are hardwired side. And so from that perspective, Uh, emotions are ways of rapidly bringing in a lot of information to um, bias us towards a certain type of behavior that's supposed to be good for our survival, right? And, to, you know, if you're subscribed to evolutionary theories in psychology, those things that are high, hardwired would have at some point, at least in our, in our history, helped us survive. Norman then explained how emotions trigger actions, but not all of these actions are as useful as they once were. Opening our eyes and mouth when we are scared, for example, 
might have helped us dodge a predator in the past, but can't really help us face a nerve-wracking performance evaluation at work because fleeing from a meeting at work is not generally considered socially acceptable behavior in a North American society in the 2020s. How would you say we learn healthy norms around expressing emotions when we are in a social context? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a great question, really relevant to our conversation today. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to say that that the ideal is always just to do whatever you want. And, you know, you can see with little kids like that gets into trouble and you can see with the, uh, I'm sort of poorly regulated adults that gets you into trouble. So we ought not to always say the first thing that comes to our mind, especially if, if it's going to possibly harm another person or disrupt our ability to work together. Um, so it's quite uh, normal and probably sensible that there are certain uh, customs and etiquette uh, around being in groups. It just helps us all get along, right? Like it's very hard to think creatively if you're worried that someone is about to hurt you in a group. Basically, regulating how we express our emotions is a big part of what has allowed us to function as a society. So we want to be able to feel like safe and hopefully supported and that and that it's okay for us to express ideas and even more important sometimes to negotiate conflict without it actually becoming threatening because we don't always have to agree on ideas but sometimes we have to come up with one thing we're going to do in groups so as we grow most human beings learn how to comprehend their emotions and shape their reactions in a way that improves our chances of achieving the goals of the group we are in and bringing this idea into the business realm This is the main goal of corporate cultures, guaranteeing that individual employees are working together to achieve the company's common goals. I asked Norman how individuals can go from having an emotion to learning how to not instinctively react to it. And there's lots of theories around emotion regulation. Probably the dominant model in Western research is the, the process model theorizes that there's sort of like four different phases where we regulate our emotions. Uh, one is just situation selection. So by the time you're in that meeting, like you're already selected into that situation. So one way to not get into argument is don't go to the meeting. So let's okay. say you have to go to the meeting, right? So now you're there. So then you have three phases left. Um, one is still something you can do ahead of time, which is choosing what you pay attention to. Uh, so it's called like attention selection. Um, so you could distract yourself from someone you know is annoying or decide like, I'm just not going to feed the fire if, if this is someone who antagonizes me. Um, I can just think about something else. The next two phases of emotional regulation are in what Norman calls the consequence side. So after something or someone displayed a behavior that set off an emotional reaction. Um, once someone says something that then hap that can set you off, now you're in consequence side, the consequence side of emotion regulation, right? So the behavior has already happened. You can try to change the meaning of the behavior by doing what's called reappraising it, right? So looking at it from a different perspective. You know, this person was like, "Nice shirt," and like rolled their eyes, but and maybe they're a bad person, <laughs> but maybe also like someone just yelled at them or they had a really rough morning. Um, and it's actually not about me and they just don't know what to do with their own upset, right? So there's different ways I can try to think of the situation. And if I can come up with an explanation that I sincerely believe in, it can really change the emotional tone of the situation. So if I find out that like someone just discovered their partner was cheating on them before they said something mean about, mean about my shirt and they just found out like an hour before the meeting, I'm probably going to cut them a lot more slack and be like, I'm not going to take anything this person says too seriously right now because like they're dealing with something major, right? So reappraising can be a healthy, honest way to deal with negative emotions and change the automatic reaction they may trigger. But in fast-paced environments, employees often cannot find the time or the tools to go through a reappraisal process. 
if you can't reappraise and change the meaning uh, of an emotional distressor, um, then the final phase is now just exp- uh, controlling what you express. So you're not going to change the meaning of the situation. You're just going to change your expression. And so this is most commonly talked about as just like suppressing or inhibiting the thing you want to do. This brings us to toxic positivity in the workplace. Toxic positive work cultures are more focused on controlling how employees perceive and express what they are feeling and less on changing the causes of the stressful situations that contribute to the unpleasant emotions they might be experiencing in the first place. The more stressful and upsetting a situation is, the harder it is to deal with it on the meaning level, especially if, as a leader or an employee, you don't have the time or the tools to reappraise or help your team reappraise. So, in order to keep a productive environment focused on company goals, companies can choose less complex alternatives like distracting employees from painful exhaustion experiences with happy hours or the promise of a Disney trip. The constant suppression of emotions can have both short and long-term consequences for individuals. And really the worst thing you can do is not try to change anything about your internal experience or the information you're taking in and just block the expression of emotion. So suppression, that final thing you can do after you're already triggered is not really uh, good for teamwork. It's not good for you in the long term. But over the, the long term, what that ends up doing is it uh, constricts our blood vessels while our physiology is actually really elevated. So your heart rate is trying to pump all this blood through your system. You're getting all these stress hormones that are making you like try to act like fine and pull all of the blood vessels away from the surface of the body. And then that's, that's literally like a physical definition of stress. So my body was operating in high stress conditions daily, but the culture I encounter in those environments convinced me that the best employees were the positive ones who would not allow the pressure to show. And I learn how to physically limit those reactions. In the long term, that's going to lead to like heart disease, right? And hardening of arteries um, and the stress hormones will eat away at your organs, including your brain. So it's really um, not taking care of yourself at all just to get through the situation. Something that came up a lot in my personal experience were deadlines that were defined from the top, having large customers in mind. Because I was part of the delivery teams, I knew those targets could not be met without sacrificing the quality of work, but after protesting a few times, I realized the power dynamic I was in was unlikely to change. So, working on these kinds of projects always felt like a losing game from the start. For some time, I thought that I was just unfit for big challenging responsibilities, but it turns out that when you believe a challenge is achievable, the physiological response to a difficult task can be quite different. Right, and this this ties into a really large literature on um, what is stress and the nature of stress and the idea that, you know, stress is just anytime there's a challenge for us, it could be interpreted as stress. But if we feel like we can meet that challenge, um, actually it plays out differently in our bodies, even though we elevate our heart rate and breathing rate, we don't necessarily have that defensive um, constriction of all the blood vessels. Your attention doesn't necessarily narrow the same way and you can get through stressors. Apart from deflecting attention from stressors and keeping employees in a state that can harm their physical health in the long run, these type of work environments can also create a mismatch between what individuals are feeling and what they think they are supposed to feel at their jobs. 
These corporate cultures can also reinforce the idea that employees can change their emotional states if they just think hard enough, which, as we have seen, is not the best way to approach undesired emotions. In a Washington Post article on toxic positivity in the workplace, Brett Ford, assistant professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, mentions that overanalyzing one's feelings to try to feel something else can leave individuals with what she calls a meta-emotion. When it comes to toxic positivity, this emotion is usually disappointment because you're not as happy as you thought you could be. In my case, I also felt very frustrated because I thought I could be doing even more to feel positive about my company, my team, and my work. No matter how hard I thought about the issues I had at hand, I just could not feel authentically optimistic about those challenges. There's some pretty good evidence to suggest that if you can really put a positive spin on things or have a inaccurate but skewed toward the positive bias around things, that's actually what most of us are doing, right? So we have a lot of protective biases. If you ask 100 people who thinks they're better than average, more than 50% of people will say like, yes, for any kind of question, right? Sometimes you'll have life experiences that clearly tell you you're not better in one category or something than another, but across a bunch of different ranges, there's this kind of halo effect, right? Where people try to look good and try not to look bad. And as far as we can tell, that's actually good for you. To a degree, having a bit of um, a, a positive, putting a positive gloss on things is helpful and I think a, a non-jaded way to think about that is like there's a lot of ambiguity in the world and if you have some choice over how you're going to interpret things you might as well interpret things like in an empowering hopeful way you might as well lean a bit more that way because that's going to make you feel better and it's going to make you more uh, able to function in my experience Another aspect of toxic positive workplaces is not only that my negative emotions were not appropriate and should not be discussed at work, but also that there's this notion that I have the responsibility of solving all the problems that I'm faced with. Some companies even go to the lengths of formally making this part of their values. Ultimately, whenever you have a cue from your body that tells you like like a feeling like something's wrong or it's not going the way i expected even even if it's not like flat out wrong or bad you kind of have two options right one option is to is to do what most of us try to do which is like get rid or fix the wrong thing um and if we can do that like i think we should right so um this idea of taking action which is known in, in this sort of theory uh, as active inference like you feel something wrong and you decide i'm gonna make an inference towards an action to deal with it is how we commonly deal with our emotions and that's one of kind of our two options and i think it is good to try to take action especially when that action helps resolve the stressor the problem with that approach, and with the idea of thinking like an owner, is that it can be simplistic and not account for the power dynamics and the structures in which we are immersed in our workplaces. In an interview for El País, Dr. Carlos Jesus Fernandez from the Sociology Department at the UAM in Madrid shared how corporate cultures are going further and now seeking to get different compromise from employees. According to the professor, and I quote, before, you needed to do a job for eight hours a day. Now companies are looking for personal characteristics and competencies related to your personality. That might be why we are seeing more motivational speeches and expressions like leadership, entrepreneurship, or getting out of your comfort zone being thrown around in the office. 
in my own experience, they made me feel like I was building something great along with the company, even if I did not have actual stakes in the venture. In the same El País piece, Oscar Perez Zapata from the Universidad Carlos III, also in Madrid, mentions that the goal of building such workspaces is to, quote, create strong corporate cultures that appeal to emotional and intimate elements like employees' passions, end of quote. In this context, when a company propels positive thinking, it is also decreasing the possibility of negative feedback from employees, and it is shifting responsibility from the company's structure to the individual worker. According to Zapata, this connects to the idea that anything can be done with self-management and that the individual employee is the only one responsible for their successes and failures in the workplace. But the other option is is kind of known as perceptual inference, which is the idea that like, well, I didn't really expect to feel this way, um, but maybe I don't necessarily have to do something about this particular thing. It's actually okay that I feel this way. I can even update my expectations. Like maybe I'm just going to feel this way for a while. And if you if you really can authentically do that, like not just like say the words, but not really believe it or, or feel it, you also resolve the stress. So my whole day is not about like, how do I escape this sensation? Like as soon as I accept that, like that's just, it's okay and I can handle it. It also kind of goes away um, as, a, as a problem. So there you have it. Authentic optimism is good and empowering, but that's not how we will always feel, especially at work. When frustrations and negative feelings do arise, finding oneself in an environment that denies these feelings is detrimental to our mental and physical health and to our sense of belonging to that team. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, we're losing customers, we're losing sales, we're not meeting deadlines. Why are people quitting, right? Like, why, why do you have so much turnover? These are things that you'll start seeing in, in organizations like that, because the three things that we really want in life, if you believe like social determination theory, which is a theory of well-being, is um, to feel like we have agency, like what we do matters, that we have competence in, in ourselves and people around us, so we can do the jobs we want to do and the people around us can do that too. And then we have relatedness, that we can connect authentically to the people around us and are held in some sort of esteem. And you can see how all three of those things are just eroded when you're not allowed to solve problems. So you've crossed off the three major things that make life meaningful for people. So why would you stay in that kind of situation? Making this podcast series is a way for me to try to answer questions that consume me in my transition from a full-time employee to a full-time MBA student. I thought a lot of what I had gone through was just my own unfortunate experience or something that was particular to the work culture in my home country, Brazil, or even something that was related to the industry in which I had chosen to work. That is why my initial idea was to focus on discussing toxic positivity in tech startups, a segment that has for long hidden its struggles with mental health, propelled unorthodox productivity hacks, and the idea that your success depends solely on you, a notion that I obviously strong object. But talking to people from diverse countries and industries in the past few months just showed me that the issue is more pervasive than I had initially thought and that toxic positivity in the workplace is a phenomenon reaching far more friends than I expected. So, my ultimate goal with this limited series is starting a conversation and helping listeners identify and name some of the feelings and dynamics they might be experiencing at work. I, for one, 
Now, recognize that what I felt when I started writing the scripts for these episodes was a mild panic attack. Work is part of our lives, so we might as well try to make that relationship a bit more transparent, respectful, and healthy, and I hope this podcast helps in beginning the dialogue. This was Positively Exhausted, stories of toxic positivity in the workplace. In the next episode, we will explore toxic positivity from the perspective of employees in different industries and investigate if there are gender differences when it comes to experiencing a toxic positive environment. In the final episode, we will explore the issue from the lens of employers. Thank you and see you soon. Hi, it's Sarah Kaplan again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For further information about this podcast, Gate Audio, and the Institute for Gender and the Economy, check out the links in the show notes or visit gendereconomy.org. That's gendereconomy, all one word, dot org. And thanks for listening.